Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to look again at Sudan. Is there any hope now of stopping the slide toward protracted civil war? Gunfire, explosions, men with guns now ruling the Sudanese capital. These are the sounds and sights of civil war. A power struggle between Sudan's armed forces and its rival faction, the Rapid Support Forces, has turned residential streets into war zones. So we're now into the third month of fighting between the Sudanese army, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the paramilitary Rapid Support Force, led by Mohamed Hamdan Dagalon, or Hemeti. The two military factions fell out earlier this year after dissolving the civilian government in a 2021 coup. Their warring over the Sudanese capital, Khartoum, has left much of it in ruins. Fighting's also broken out elsewhere in Sudan. In parts of Sudan's south, former rebel groups have taken advantage of the army's distraction to seize land. In Darfur and the west of Sudan, all too familiar intercommunal violence has surged. The paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, RSF, are currently engaged in a fight for dominance with Sudan's army. But years before that rivalry spilled blood in Sudan's streets, they were implicated in atrocities in Darfur. Now, once again, Darfur to the west of the country is stalked by the specter of genocide. So are we already in the early stages of a long war in Sudan? What would such a war look like? And what would its implications be for the Horn of Africa, the Sahel and around the Red Sea? So to talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Shewit Walder-Mikhail, Crisis Group Sudan expert, and Alan Boswell, our Horn of Africa director. Shewit, Alan, welcome back on. Thanks, Richard, for having us. Thank you, Richard. So we'll come to the fighting in Khartoum, but can we start first with Darfur? As we heard up top, reports of terrible violence in parts of the region. Yes, like you mentioned, Richard, all rivalries have reignited in Darfur. The conflict, which started as, you know, fight between the RSF and the army, has now very dangerously taken a tribal dimension, pitting, you know, so-called Arab clans against non-Arabs um, initially in West Darfur. But this has uh, increasingly spread to central Darfur. So we are hearing a massive displacement of communities, tribal militias, particularly from uh, the Arab tribe, you know, have been allegedly attacking other tribal groups, particularly the Masalit, who are reaching Chad. And they have told of stories of massive atrocities uh, from killing of young boys and men to sexual violence, to looting and burning, pillaging of villages. So we're looking at mass atrocities committed in West Darfur and elsewhere. We've seen a video of the killing of West Darfur's governor. And in that video, we've seen a leader of the RSF take part in the killing. So there is a tribal dimension, definitely. But it seems like a tribal militias and membership in the RSF sort of overlaps. So that's why a lot of uh, fingers are pointed against the RSF as the culprit for what's happening in Darfur and mass atrocities committed against civilians in that state. And Shawid, how much is the army itself involved in Darfur? The conflict started as a conflict between the RSF and the army, but a lot of these communities who are accusing the RSF of attacking them are also accusing the army of not protecting civilians. It is said that the army did not move in, sort of shield communities from these attacks. 
The army has uh, respondents saying that they didn't have the kind of contingent that uh, the RSF had. The RSF were in their thousands and the army, their soldiers would have been overrun if they had intervened. So that's what they're claiming. And should the former rebels, so Mina Manawi, for example, this former rebel leader, signed a peace deal in 2020, the Juba deal with the transitional government and then became governor of Darfur. So what, in late May, he called on civilians in Darfur to take up arms in self-defense against the rapid support force, against the RSF. Have his forces, have other former rebel leaders, rebel groups got involved? The Juba signatories have mostly stayed neutral in a sense that they haven't actively got involved in the conflict so far. So these are a number of our groups, mostly from Darfur. Some are big, like led by Jibril and Mini Minawi. So both of them have uh, refrained from taking part in the current conflict. Mostly, they say it has to do with Chad's own neutrality. Chad's president, Deby, is the same ethnic group as, as Mini Minawi and as Jibril. Uh, he's a Zawa. And Chad's own neutrality is said to have a significant role in the neutrality of these armed groups in Darfur. And the other non-signatory, Abdul Wahid Al-Nur, has also stayed neutral so far, even though the conflict is spreading to uh, central Darfur, where many of his forces are located. And many of the IDPs within Darfur and many of the refugees in Chad are from the Fur. And it's said that, you know, the conflict in central Darfur is now uh, also targeting them. So we're going to wait and see for how long uh, Abdul Wahid will continue to be neutral in this conflict. And there's been these stories of atrocities from the people that have been displaced, people that have fled, uh, particularly from Al-Janaina, this town city near the Chadian border. But do we have a sense at all of the numbers that have been killed and displaced in Darfur over the last 10 weeks or so? There is no way to say how many have been killed. Some say, you know, 1,000, others say 3,000. But in terms of displacement, the whole of El Janina has been emptied. The so-called non-Arab tribes have basically tried to flee, not just the city, but the country towards Chad. And they're telling tales of atrocities committed as they're trying to flee. Their properties looted, young men and boys killed by tribal militias, violence against women, you know, sexual violence also. We are increasingly hearing of that. But how many exactly were killed, I think is very difficult to say. And this is, as we talked about, this is not fighting between the army and the RSF, the sort of central confrontation of the war in Khartoum. But how can you best understand the relationship between what's happening in Darfur and what's happening in Khartoum? Yeah, I think there's a few things to stress. First of all, the reports we have coming out of West Darfur especially are extremely alarming. The reports from refugees are essentially describing, you know, uh, forms of ethnic cleansing. As Shewitt mentioned, it's very difficult to figure out exactly the toll. It does look horrifying. And in many ways, an eruption of many of the old lines of fighting and violence that we did see 20 years ago in Darfur, which, of course, continues to be a sort of stain on the international conscience and very much one of the major atrocities, I think, that, you know, that many people think we've seen in our lifetime. 
Another way to point it is one of the things that Crisis Group has been warning about, we've talked about on this podcast from the beginning, is that if this war, you know, which is essentially centered as a battle in Khartoum between the RSF and SAF, if it continues, Sudan is just simply not a stable enough state um, that the rest of the country was going to be able to stay stable. The situation in Darfur, the the uptick that we've seen in, in South Kordofan and Blue Nile and, you know, in, in fighting spring to North Kordofan. We're starting to get a glimpse into what a prolonged civil war in Sudan would look like. In terms of the connection to the politics and fighting in Khartoum, we can't totally decouple the two. Essentially, you have these Darfur Arab groups, um, Arabized groups. They now see themselves at war in many ways on two fronts with the riverine Arabs who have long dominated Sudan's politics. These are the core of the state um, around central and northern Sudan. And that's a lot of the rhetoric coming out of RSF right now is very much about how it's time for these, you know, Sahelian Arabs, these quote unquote African Arabs. It's their time now, as opposed to these elite Arabs, essentially, from around the Khartoum area. Um, and then meanwhile, they're also fighting at the same time with the non-Arab communities in Darfur, you know, not on all fronts at the moment, but, you know, the, those old lines are now re-emerging that go back over some 20 years now. And so you do have this, in some ways, quite narrow group that's taking on much of Sudan, but it is a group who has, you know, been instrumentalized, militarized by Khartoum for its wars in the peripheries a lot over the past few decades. Um, so it is very experienced, although it's on the offensive right now, still also understands that it's very much, you know, taking on major risk and, and under threat if it does lose um, as well. And I think that's had quite a collective unifying effect. So I want to come in a moment to Khartoum and the latest from the capital, but can we just quickly talk first about the fighting in the Kordofans and the Blue Nile, I mean, these areas that border South Sudan? So what's happening there? The RSF and army have been fighting for weeks in northern Kordofan for the control of the capital, through which a major oil pipeline from South Sudan passes. In South Kordofan, the army is fighting both the RSF and Sudan's People's Liberation Movement led by Abdulaziz Al-Hilu. Al-Hilu's forces are not exactly siding with the RSF, but they're fighting the army. Al-Hilu's forces are also making headway in Blue Nile State, which used to be territories nominally under the control of Malik Agar, who has been appointed as deputy chairman of the Sovereign Council. Shall we just to remind people, the Sovereign Council was, in essence, the government before the current fighting broke out? Yes, used to be uh, led by the two coup leaders, both Hameti and Burhan. Burhan used to be the head of the Sovereign Council and Hameti was his deputy. But now, you know, the army has ousted Hameti as the deputy and Malik Agar is now currently uh, Burhan's deputy in the Sovereign Council. In essence, then, these are former rebel groups in South Kordofan and Blue Nile that have now sort of taken up arms against the army. Yeah, I mean, this is the existing rebel forces under the Abdelaziz Al-Hilu force of the SPLM North, as Shewitt mentions. This is the group who was essentially uh, left over on the northern side of the border after Sudan and South Sudan separated more than 10 years ago. They were aligned together with Malik Agar, who's now replaced Hameti as the deputy, but they're mostly fighting in Nuba Mountains in the South Kordofan area and in Blue Nile. They had a mutual sort of de facto truce between the army and these SPLM North uh, forces, so they hadn't fought any major battles in several years. So 
all the eyes were on them originally to see if these Sudanese rebels would take advantage of the situation and make their own play. And what we've basically seen is that they've surrounded Kadugli, the capital of South Kordofan, and they're retaking areas that they used to hold basically during the old Sudanese civil war time at various points um, before the comprehensive peace agreement of 2005 that ended that big war and paved the way to South Sudan. So you're seeing... You're seeing these SPM North faces take advantage of the situation and basically press the army on fronts that they're not able to defend right now and taking back territory that is pretty close to what they held in the past. I think the key question is if they're going to do anything beyond that or try to march anywhere further. So let's then turn to Khartoum and the the fighting between the RSF and the Sudanese armed uh, forces. Shewid, what's the latest in Khartoum? I mean, there has been this uptick in violence just over the last few days, from what I understand. Khartoum is still the epicenter of clashes with civilians caught in the crossfire. As we speak, intense fighting is taking place, particularly in Umdurman, the twin city uh, of Khartoum. The RSF is taking shelter in residential areas and they continue to control large areas in Khartoum and neighborhoods in Umdurman and Bahri. The army tries to bomb major areas controlled by the RSF, but they haven't really managed to dislodge them and we don't expect that they'll be able to do so in the coming weeks or months even. The conflict has led to the destruction of Khartoum. And people continue to flee mostly to other states like River Nile, Jazeera. Others who can leave the country are doing so. The total displaced population, according to the UN, has reached 2.5 million. And the 2 million apparently have been uh, internally displaced. So basically, civil servants are no longer, well, at least most of them are not based in Khartoum anymore. And fighting continues, obviously. And should we- the presidential palace, the airport, these sort of key bits of Khartoum's infrastructure. Who holds what now? So mostly they're fighting, like you mentioned, for this key sites. Right now, the fighting has actually been for their bridges leading to Khartoum because these are major supply lines, particularly for the RSF. And the army tries to do its best to control or at least to block many of these bridges. The other major, we see fighting over army bases, storage facilities. For instance, the RSF has recently taken control of the Central Reserve Facility, which is a large police base located in southern Khartoum. And they managed to seize large quantities of weapons and ammunition. They also said that they seized some tanks and armored vehicles from the base. So these are the kind of sites that they are fighting for, particularly the RSF. A few weeks before that, the RSF captured the headquarters of the air defense located in Khartoum. So, I mean, we've slowly seen the expansion of the RSF through Khartoum and the two cities. There is uh, currently intense fighting in Umdurman, where the army seems to be pushing back the RSF. But so these are the major sites that they're fighting over. And you mentioned the RSF getting weapons from army bases, police bases that they capture. But do we know if the RSF are getting weapons from other places too, from outside Sudan? Obviously, people talk a lot about the United Arab Emirates, close Emirati ties to Hermeti. 
Well, a lot of people are saying, obviously, we have different reports from different people, but we knew that the RSF, you know, they were ready, both the RSF and the army, they were ready for this conflict. They had large stores of ammunition and weapons in different parts of the country, but also in different areas of Khartoum itself. We haven't really seen evidence of resupplies, although there are rumors that, you know, both groups are getting supplies from outside backers. So far, there isn't really clear evidence of that. But increasingly, we suspect that they are getting supplies and they may continue getting supplies from regional backers if the conflict continues. You know, I think it's been a working assumption among officials working on this that the Sudanese army has enough friends in the region that it would probably not have a problem keeping supplied, although its problems on the battlefield don't appear to be supplies, they appear to be an incapable force. I think the key question has been then is are are any of RSF's friends who are fewer in number, you know, are any of them going to step in? Or will the RSF have to continue finding its own sort of smuggling networks, its own uh, extensive wealth that it has mostly, I think, in the UAE, um, and whether or not it would use those to, to find a way to sort of resupply on the illicit market? So I think those are a lot of the questions that are essentially being looked at right now. And the RSF have said that Egypt's air force is also bombing their bases. I assume those stories are also unconfirmed. So far, I mean, the RSF did accuse Egypt of taking part in the conflict, particularly Boon being their positions or their convoys from their, you know, their supply lines from Darfur to Khartoum. But these are all allegations for now. A lot of people expect Egypt to be involved in this conflict in support of the army, but there hasn't been any clear evidence to suggest that they are actually involved. Yeah. So what, two and a half months in, does it look like either the army or the RSF are going to prevail anytime soon? It doesn't look like it. Last week, there was a lot of speculation amongst the international community, I could say, that the RSF might be able to take Khartoum, but we haven't seen any conclusive evidence that the RSF is actually winning. So I would say that even though the fighting continues, there seems to be a sort of balance of power between the two, which might mean that the conflict will continue for some time to come. And broadly speaking, if you would outline, we could start with the army, what the army, what Burhan's sort of theory of victory is. I mean, how does the army think that it's going to prevail? And then we could sort of come to the RSF afterwards. So for the army, they're fighting in their home turf. So they hope that the RSF is actually going to face significant logistical challenges. And we're already hearing of fuel shortages that the RSF is facing. Obviously, food and ammunition is not hard to come by in Khartoum, in the two cities also. So, I mean, the army continues to also bomb RSF supply lines from Darfur to the center. So I think what the army hopes for is that the RSF is going to increasingly find it difficult, particularly as it also continues to fight on different fronts. We've seen a number of convoys leaving Khartoum to join the fighting in Darfur. So the army is just trying to hold out until uh, the RSF is exhausted, can't resupply itself adequately to continue this fighting. And presumably trying to kill Hemeti. 
Yes. So both parties, I think, would consider it a major victory if they managed to kill any of the leaders. Although recently the RSF had uh, released a number of high-level military leaders for the Eid celebrations. So that also we thought was an indication that the RSF is looking at, you know, redressing many of the allegations against the RSF within within Khartoum particularly. You know, we have seen a lot of videos of uh, the RSF troops looting and pillaging residential areas, business centers, uh, government offices. And the RSF, I mean, though it might be expanding and winning on the ground in Khartoum, it's definitely losing in diplomatic terms. It's losing a lot of its political backers also within Sudan and also in the region. And we've talked in previous episodes about Hemeti's background. His sort of early days fighting with the Janjaweed in Darfur, then forming the RSF under Omar al-Bashir's patronage, then during the revolution, sort of partnering with the army to oust Bashir, and then sharing power for a while with Burhan, partnering with him to oust the sort of civilian leaders in the coup in 2021. And then, you know, as we heard up top, splitting away from Burhan and trying to position himself in some ways as a political leader. But given, as you say, Shewit, how sort of widely reviled he's now become, the only sort of actor that many people in Khartoum dislike more than the army is Hemeti and the RSF. So how does he now see his path to defeating the army and then holding power in some form? Well, Richard, we have a very awkward situation of sorts um, uh, with the RSF because they have... As, as Shewitt mentioned, they are in many ways winning the Battle of Khartoum, although in some ways it looks like a stalemate. In other ways, you could say the, the RSFs had the upper hand, at least by sheer control of neighborhoods. But at the same time, they have completely alienated you know, most of the residents in Khartoum. Their core of support was essentially these Arab-identifying groups that we've talked about, who hail especially from the Darfur region, parts of Kordofan as well, and possibly even beyond uh, Sudan's border in some of the Sahelian Arab communities. And so, you know, the, the theory of governing of if RSF wins is one that people are talking about, and people have different theories. Um, people think the RSF, you know, if they did manage to essentially win uh, the Battle of Khartoum, that they would appoint, you know, they would appoint a civilian government. Um, I think the challenge is, is that it's unclear who exactly would work with the RSF at this point. I think it seems pretty clear that a large portion of Sudanese population would reject them, especially the riverines, who, of course, Khartoum is is in the riverine area. So, you know, they, they'd continue to be something of an occupying force. Uh, so the RSF winning, in, in summary, looks like a continuation of, of civil war. Um, and, you know, it doesn't look like the, the civil war in Darfur would die down either. So the hopes of a military victory in this situation, to the degree that sometimes it ends conflicts, it doesn't look like one that would come about in this case and then, of course, the uh, on the army side, I think there were there were some hopes among Sudanese and others that if the Sunnis army won, despite the fact that obviously it hasn't been very amenable to civilian rule, that at least you know at least you could preserve the core Sudanese state. And even though the casualty of that would probably be ongoing war in Darfur, um, but I think some were willing to sort of accept that as a cost. Uh, but the major problem is just the Sunnis army, you know, has completely looked unfit for purpose. Um, and has shown itself in need of massive reform and hasn't looked capable to push the RSF out. There's reports of these other militias, these Islamist militias, fighting alongside the army. Do you want to say something about that? 
I think we can't stress enough when talking about this, you know, the Sudanese army, um, as I mentioned, just really hasn't performed and is, you know, and, and you can say RSF has been managing to win, but you can also just say the army has proved that it was incapable of, of really mounting an infantry capable of, of fighting. Um, so one thing that we've seen is you've had this sort of hollowed out army. It's relying on a variety of militias and, and other groups, but it's also now relying increasingly on Islamist, yes, but also essentially counter-revolutionary forces elements that were part of the Bashir regime, who were aligned to the Bashir regime, who are basically unacceptable to a lot of Sudanese, to a lot of outsiders. But then, of course, Himeti and the RSF arising out of the Darfur conflict, you know, and what the Janjaweed committed back then, and what these groups are now committing in Darfur as we speak, that obviously makes Himeti and the RSF unacceptable as well. So we're dealing with a very bad set of actors, neither of whom looks like they're capable of prevailing. And just before we come to some of the diplomacy efforts to stop the fighting, I have to ask about Wagner and uh, Russia. Does the failed mutiny in Russia that we talked about on the podcast last week, I mean, does that matter much for Sudan? What role have Wagner and Russia played? Yes, Wagner has forged close ties with the RSF, mostly commercial ties. We've talked about this on, on previous podcasts, but unlike the state security services, essentially mercenary services uh, provided to the state apparatus that we see in other African countries. The Wagner presence in Sudan over the past few years has been much more focused on gold mining. um, And yes, very tied to Hemeti and the RSF, especially. And US officials have accused Wagner of transporting some arms, although perhaps not a sustained amount, but at least handing off some weapons through uh, the Central African Republic to his forces in Darfur. But, you know, no one has really claimed that Wagner's support to RSF is playing any substantial role in the war. It looks like these transfers, you know, could be either one-offs or of limited significance. And so we definitely don't want to overstate that. As to what the events in Russia might actually mean, Um, On the Sudan context, I mean, honestly, since we don't see Wagner playing a major role at the moment, or Russia playing a major role, I think that speculation could be better used um, on other contexts. Because at the moment, I think it, you know, any of that would only have a quite peripheral effect on what's happening in Sudan right now. So let's come then to efforts to try to get them to stop. We should start with the Saudi hosted track in Jeddah. Uh, Saudi and the U.S. convened the representatives from both the army and the RSF of, of sort of varying different levels, led to declarations of ceasefires, none of which have actually held. Is there any hope for that Jeddah track? The U.S. has more or less adjourned the talks in Jeddah, which were bilaterally between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, you know, and excluded the U.K. and the U.A.E., as well as Sudanese civilians, the African Union, EGAD, you know, a major player such as Egypt. Um, so it was a very sort of narrow track in terms of who was there is just the, the, the U.S., the Saudis, and the two warring parties. Um, the, the main focus had been on trying to get a humanitarian ceasefire, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Essentially, that kept failing enough, and those ceasefires kept breaking down enough um, that um, the U.S. especially decided to pause them for now. And, you know, U.S. officials have told us that they're reevaluating it. They're not giving up on the Jeddah track, but they are sort of considering how to move forward if they need to rejig it at all. 
And they'd also like to see more commitment from the two sides. So I think there's a bit of recognition that at the moment, neither side, for different reasons, neither side is really at a place they're really going to negotiate for a ceasefire. RSF, because in some ways it thinks that it could be close to winning. SAF, because, you know, it thinks it needs to have the time to turn the tide of war. It also thinks the RSF's been abusing the ceasefires to sort of regroup and, and gain an advantage. So I think there's a pause to reevaluate to see if the conditions get any riper for any sort of negotiated agreement. And so essentially, you do have the Sunni state collapsing right now, and you have no real active mediation track between these two. And one of the things we've thought about is whether Egypt, given its close relations to the Sudanese army, and the Emirates, given the ties to Hermeti, might be included sort of in some form in the Jeddah track as a way of helping increase pressure on the two sides to pause. I think the initial idea of Jeddah was you got the US and Saudis, you know, both relatively neutral, both who had leverage over the two sides, but it proved sort of incapable of pressing either side to actually get the ceasefire. So if you go back to the drawing board and sort of look for any parties who could have leverage of these two who could maybe change dynamics, one of the idea was, could you bring in, you know, the country that perhaps is uh, closest to the army who's outside the, the talks, and that would be Egypt, and, and the party who has the closest ties to the RSF who's outside the talks, and that would be the UAE, and potentially, well, first of all, engage them much more, and then potentially, you know, consider whether or not that would include any sort of role in Jeddah specifically. The idea just being, you know, can you go back to the drawing board and find any sort of formulation that brings more leverage? Um, you know, we, we tend to find that when powerful actors like that are outside these processes, the chances of them doing their own activities are much higher. You know, everyone publicly, and I think privately, wants a ceasefire. That doesn't mean all those actors are pulling out all stops to try to get a ceasefire. Everyone's, you know, you have a lot of actors who are hedging. They might not want the war to continue, but they don't want their side to lose. So including the major actors, uh, engaging them more who do have leverage over these parties, um, you know, would make them more comfortable. I think that also whatever comes out of any sort of ceasefire, that they would play a role also in shaping that and that they wouldn't be cut out. Um, but it is a sort of a proposal built out of desperation. It's possible it might happen. I kind of doubt that we see a formal role given to them, um, but I would hope that we'd see uh, more engagement. And it could be that it's not just including the UAE and Egypt, for instance, in these talks, but a sort of broader formulation, maybe tying it more to the African Union core group, which does include, you know, Egypt, UAE, and, and many other countries and institutions. So there, there could be some other workarounds. But we're not quite ready to say just because the US and Saudi Arabia alone were unable to force these two that you couldn't manage to find a broader configuration that coordinated more closely and actually tried at a very high level to get these two to stop fighting. However, it does look very apparent that the window for that may be slipping away. And it's why we've been stressing there was this very urgent need to try to get a ceasefire soon or else Sudan could, you know, could collapse and slip into what would be a multi-sided civil war. And I think we're sort of at the phase where we're watching that happen. And in some ways, Alan, tell me if this is right, it's a tricky time for diplomacy involving Abu Dhabi. Saudi relations with the Emirates seem to be strained. US relations, uh, not great. No signs of strain in what have traditionally been quite close relationships. You know, relations between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, you know, I think they are heading in a much worse direction than what a lot of observers may realize, given that they've been, you know, close allies for a long time. Relations between Egypt and the UAE, again, similar situation. Those relations are not great. Relations between the US and UAE, 
They're also not trending in a very good direction, largely over uh, Russia policy. So we think it's important to have all these actors with influence somehow involved in the process. But if we don't see that come about, it's probably because some of these existing tensions already are proving too much, perhaps, to get everyone around the same table. So yes, there are some real political obstacles given intra-Gulf relations right now to making that happen. And Alan, how's the mood in Washington? Do you think people sort of see the gravity of the moment of how bad things could get in Sudan, the implications of that, or they see it, but they just don't see much space, much hope of stopping it at the moment? Both. I, I would say generally we've been disappointed not just with the U.S. response and, and the U.S. You know, does deserve credit for, I think, trying with the Jeddah track and really marshalling efforts to bring these two together in Jeddah, even though it, it hasn't worked. But generally, we've been very disappointed with the broader diplomatic efforts, given the scale and the magnitude of the crisis that we're dealing with, given the urgency of what we're dealing with in Sudan. We keep saying it, but you know, Khartoum, the Sunnis capital and core of the Sunni state, it's basically fallen apart. There are a lot of parallels with Mogadishu and Somalia of 30 years ago. The Sudanese elite, the upper middle class, they've basically all fled. Most of the major political actors have fled, and you see other parts of the country falling into conflict. So given that, given that this would create basically a new giant hole of instability in you know, at this crossroads between the Sahel and the Red Sea, the Mediterranean, the Horn of Africa, given that there was a real need to, to really step in at a very high level and try to arrest this. We just haven't seen that. We've seen very engaged efforts, you know, from the African Union, from EGAD, from the US, from Saudi Arabia, from Brussels. It hasn't congealed into something that looks like a coordinated, high-level, serious effort, or at least serious enough as the situation deserves. And obviously, Sudan's collapse could be destabilizing across the Red Sea. That's why Riyadh is so worried. But it could be potentially devastating to the Horn, to Central Africa, the Sahel. Could we talk a bit about what African leaders are doing? So we mentioned the African Union, this core group that it's set up, but also the immediate region, IGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, the Horn Regional Bloc. So the IGAD and the AU have been prioritize the situation in Sudan, I think, since the day the conflict broke out on 15 April. They've had a number of high-level meetings, including summit-level meetings, but also ministerial meetings on Sudan. So IGAN has appointed four active heads of state to lead the mediation in Sudan. Initially, it was South Sudan's President Salva Kiir who initiated contact between Burhan and Hameti, but uh, that didn't really lead to, to any sort of direct negotiations. And IGAD has moved away from that. And right now, it's Kenya, President Ruto, who seems to be leading the IGAD initiative, and along with Ethiopia and Djibouti. But unfortunately, the army has expressed its reservation in allowing Kenya to lead the IGAD process. So, I mean, this is going to be a major obstacle for any IGAD process going forward. So the IGAD track sort of focuses on a ceasefire between the warring parties. But they hope that it's going to lead into a wider political process that's going to be inclusive of civilians. Uh, the AU, on the other hand, has from the get-go focused on a political process. 
their major goal has been a political process that's going to bring together civilian actors. So they're looking at a long-term political process that addresses the core differences within Sudan that has led to the revolution in the country, but also to the current conflict. And they hope to bring different civilian actors together. And um, what the AU has done is bring together all potential spoilers from the region but also potential negotiators, mediators with leverage on the warring parties on one table to make sure that their concerns are addressed. So the extended group includes every stakeholder imaginable, you know, when it comes to Sudan. It looked like the AU and the EGAD process were sort of competing. But now recently, it seems like, um, you know, the AU mediation team has met uh, with the EGAD mediation team and they have sort of found ways to to iron out their differences and they've agreed to work at two different levels at the strategic leadership level but also at the operational level but we are obviously yet to see an announcement of this process of what an action plan would look like from the AU side. So you have the Jeddah track which is trying to get the parties to agree to a humanitarian ceasefire for now, going nowhere. Repeated agreements about ceasefires just haven't held. You've got IGAD, heads of state, these four leaders, also trying to forge a ceasefire, you know, without much luck. And at the same time, you've got the AU getting this big group together to talk about sort of Sudan's political future. But is there much point doing that while there's no hope of the army and RSF stopping fighting? I mean, to what extent are these tracks linked together? Well, a lot of people are actually arguing that focusing on a ceasefire that does not respond to the political crisis, which actually resulted in the conflict in the first place, is not going to lead to any ceasefire in the long term anyways. So some Sudanese have been arguing, why not resolve the political crisis that resulted in the conflict so as to address the differences between the army and the RSF, since it's not purely a military issue that led to the conflict? I think one of the reasons that you know, people are growing increasingly hopeless, though I, 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 I hate to use that term on this podcast, is, is though, as you mentioned, a lot of these other political initiatives, their utility and relevance can look increasingly questionable when you can't get the fighting to stop, when Sudan looks on a trajectory in which not only the conflicts can continue, but it'll likely, uh, you know, fragment. The hope was that if you had any hope of sort of pulling Sudan back from the brink, you would need a track that had leverage over the two warring parties that you could convince them somehow pulling out all the stops to stop fighting, and then you could pair that with political efforts, ideally led by the African Union, probably, but coordinated with EGAD, with the Arab League, with others, but that this political track could then merge with these ceasefire and security tracks. But, you know, with the inability to try to to get these two parties to stop fighting, it looks like we have quite a few tracks, you know, that don't really have any traction. Part of the problem is we have a lot of different uh, actors involved, which is good in some ways. It's great that we have four East African heads of state who are personally invested in this process through the EGAD track. The African Union has stepped forward you know, with this core group, although it hasn't been meeting as often um, or as quickly as as many would hope. You have this, you have this Jeddah track between the US and Saudis. Um, but part of the problem is that instead of complementing each other, and dividing labor, so to speak, they, you know, we, we, we've seen the parties 
not officially compete, but in many ways compete. So the, the, the four regional heads of state, they themselves aspire to negotiate a ceasefire. The AU has its own roadmap that they have put forward, and they would also like to be involved in, in ceasefire negotiations. So, so, so it's not like we have a formal division of labor um, in which the US and Saudis, for instance, are working on the security track, and the AU together with EGAD countries and other regional heads of state are, are working more on the political track. Um, instead, we don't have any real... Um, uh, agreement on how this is supposed to go. I think this would get more focus if it wasn't for the fact that the war in Sudan is increasingly looking intractable as it is. But it feels like that even if a window opened to stop this war, maybe one of the parties gained an upper hand or or there was a reason for both to negotiate. The concern is that the diplomatic realm, you know, still doesn't look coordinated enough to to possibly take advantage of the situation and keep everyone on board as well as they need to. And any ideas about what to do in Darfur in particular, given that, as we talked about, dynamics there are quite different? I mean, the preferred option clearly was that diplomats, you know, Sudanese would find some way of ending this battle for Khartoum, ending this overall power struggle between the army and the RSF, and then try to restabilize Darfur after the fact. Unfortunately, those ceasefire efforts, as we've talked about, they're essentially not going anywhere. And meanwhile, Darfur is is descending into some of the worst nightmares of the past. Darfur is also a a graveyard of sorts of 20 years of failed peace interventions, including peacekeeping, including lots of different peace-building efforts. However, there are extensive local peace efforts in multiple locations. I mean, I think clearly there needs to be some real focus right now in figuring out um, who exactly are the local peace actors? Are there ways to support them? Are there ways to promote um, intercommunal dialogue where it's appropriate to try to prevent at least spiraling intercommunal tensions? There could be space for bringing major local actors perhaps somewhere around a table, though it might be too premature for that. And obviously, there should be pressure on main actors, including Hemeti, for any sort of role they are playing in Darfur and making sure that they understand the world is watching. There are obviously no easy answers in Darfur at all. I think there will continue to be a lot of eyes on Chad, which did get involved in the Darfur War 20 years ago. There's clearly going to be a lot of focus on trying to prevent any sort of cross-border insecurity happening between Chad and Darfur as well. It's a very difficult situation, and there is definitely a problem that so much of the focus is on Khartoum, you know, that we might not see the the amount of attention uh, on Darfur that we really need to see. And if we wind back to 2019, I mean, it seems a long way away now. The revolution, thousands of people on the streets hoping for a better Sudan. It's hard to sort of fathom how cruelly those hopes have been dashed. It seems now a choice between two widely reviled military factions, as we talked about. It's terrible violence in Darfur. What prospects for rekindling in any sort of way those hopes? I mean, a lot of Sudanese who hope for a better future following, you know, 2019 removal of Omar al-Bashir. I mean, their hopes have been dashed, obviously, by this conflict. But even before the conflict, how the political pro- transition process has been handled has really alienated those who had galvanized support for the revolution itself. It was not inclusive enough. The processes were very opaque. 
and a number of Sudanese important Sudanese actors felt very much excluded. So hopefully going forward, you know, be it the AU or EGAT or any other mediation process is going to really expand the process to include uh, all Sudanese actors. It should also be led by Sudanese actors who should sit at the table, what issues to negotiate should not be set by mediators going forward. Now is a time to learn from the mistakes made by previous mediators, and hopefully we will see a better process going forward. You know, I think we're entering a new phase of this conflict. I think this part will be heavily focused on supply lines, as we're starting to see right now. I think both sides are exhausting their initial stores. And so now it's a question of if we're moving into the long haul, are they able to sustain this fighting? I think that's when the major question will come in, especially on whether the RSF is able to sustain this assault and whether, you know, essentially friends will step in to help them or they can maintain strong enough supply lines to continue getting supplies in uh, with their own wealth for a while. The Sunni's army, everyone expects, will have an easier time resupplying on multiple fronts. You know, so I think you can see where this does get problematic in the next phase, especially for mediation. Um, You know, the RSF, you know, still thinks, you know, I think many RSF people still think that victory is within its grasp because it has managed to very much outperform, I think, uh, expectations in Khartoum and to knock the the army off its feet um, and has gained a lot of territory. But on the army side, uh, you know, hardliners there... Um, as well as a lot of Sudanese who, who at this point hate the RSF, you know, they still hope that the army can eventually cut off, cut off RSF su- supply lines, um, that it can unite enough of the rest of the country behind it, you know, and, and, and essentially if it can hang on long enough, uh, to turn the tide of this war, then, then time is on its side. So I think you're facing a, a real problem there mediation wise between two sides who still think they see their own paths to victory. And the enmity between these two camps really can't be overstated. This is still, above all, an all-out power struggle for the future of Sudan. So in terms of policy and the response, the sort of focus on emergency measures to try to get this to stop, um, I think that might fade a bit into the distance. We're going to see more, I think, medium-term focus. But hopefully you can see some sort of political process that I think, unfortunately, is basically going to wait out the military dynamics on the ground in Sudan, or at least in Khartoum, um, creating a space for that political process to sort of move forward into reality in Sudanese politics. And then at the same time, it's going to be a lot of regional firefighting. It's going to be attempts to prevent the Sudanese war from devolving into a wider proxy conflict. Um, I think the news on that thus far, it could have been far worse. Um, We could have seen a lot more major external intervention than what we've seen. Um, But we still think that given enough time, it's probably not too long before we start to see more clear external interventions for this to feel more like a proxy conflict. And then that looks even more intractable to have its own dynamics. Um, And we have to grapple with what a collapsed Sudan, a prolonged collapsed Sudan looks like for the broader region. This will affect, you know, North Africa, the Sahel, the Horn of Africa. It has implications for Red Sea security, which will implicate uh, the Gulf as well. It's really a disaster of somewhat epic proportions. So I think 
you know, I, I, I wish we had more positive things to say on this podcast. It's incredibly depressing for anyone who's been watching Sudan for a while, who's known Sudanese for a very long time and, and sort of hearing what they're going through personally. But I think we're entering a new phase where we have to recognize that this might be the new normal for Sudan, uh, the new normal for the region. And it'll take a while to unpack exactly what that means. But I think we're going to have to start adjusting our response accordingly. Shewit, Alan, thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Sudan on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks as ever to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcasts at crisisgroup.org, or you can write to me directly, Atwood at crisisgroup.org, if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns. We're going to take a break next week for sure. We may be back in the second half of July. Let's see how things shape up and when our next episode is. In the meantime, thanks as ever for tuning in to this episode, to previous ones this season, and stay well.